My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egber. This is the official podcast of the Ells for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not part of the podcast, I'm a member of the growing research team and a tennis coach at the foundation. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like glue. I am also autistic. This is our seventh episode towards the Building on Neurodiverse Workforce Conference with special guest, Dr. Michael Alessandre. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole, Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Here are our foundation news and updates. We are drifting into the holiday season, starting with Halloween. On Friday, October 30th, the center will be host to what is called Family Fun Night, our way to celebrate Halloween, which will involve a Halloween-themed movie and lots of fun activities all brought to us by our recreation coordinator, Kelly Coots. And you can see the entry on our calendar in our show notes. Also, our work experience program has gone so well that we set dates and times for our hashtag, we are foodies food truck for our local community. Our work experience program takes on clients and teaches them valuable job skills while they're in the field. In this session, our clients have been learning valuable field skills on our food truck. They've even got a Facebook page. Uh, as always, it is time to go over today in the world of autism, starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Chinock. All right. I'm very excited to bring these stories to the table today. I'm also excited for Merrick's stories. So... The first story that I'm covering is on uh, the sensitive but extremely important topic of bullying. And so I would like to cover a recent call to action that was made by Drs. Johnny Downs, who's a clinical lecturer at King's College, and Rachel Holden, who's a clinical psychologist in London as well. And the call to action was made by these individuals to draw awareness to bullying that occurs commonly for adolescents and adults who have autism spectrum disorder. Studies have shown that adolescents with autism are more likely than their neurotypical peers to experience bullying, and this has been linked as a mediator of increased suicidal thoughts and behaviors. This link also exists for neurotypical individuals, where one estimate showed that young people who experience bullying are 1.4 to 10 times as likely to develop suicidal thoughts or behaviors uh, compared to their non-bullied peers. The authors of this post and the call to action were recently involved in a large-scale study where they found that adolescents with autism who were bullied were still twice as likely to develop suicidal thoughts as those who were not bullied even when they statistically controlled for the presence of comorbid psychiatric conditions. So this approach allowed for a more precise examination of the association between bullying and suicidal thoughts. 
this finding is pretty uh, astonishing and it highlights the critical importance of monitoring, identifying and preventing bullying among individuals with autism. And just in general, identifying and preventing bullying is such a critical topic in society today, especially in the context of cyberbullying, where there's more opportunity for that than we've ever seen before. The authors also highlighted a theory called the interpersonal theory of suicide, which posits that a combination of thwarted belongingness, perceived burdensomeness, and acquired capability are key factors that ultimately lead to suicidal behavior. Fortunately, there are a lot of protective factors and buffers that can assist in preventing this. Belongingness is one of them, and it's our sense of acceptance by others and our sense of a purpose in ourselves. Things like being married, having friends, and having valuable employment opportunities, which is our focus for today, are all different things that can serve as protective factors against this risk. And this is one of the reasons why we're so excited about our employment conference, which is the topic of today's podcast. Um, and we'll have the opportunity to uh, air our discussion with Dr. Alessandri and also discuss stories where we hit on the key psychological benefits related to employment for adults with ASD. We would also like to echo this call for action from Downs and Holden which urges clinicians to make a conscious effort to ask their clients with autism about their experiences with bullying during initial consultations. So very upfront uh, and right away during the therapeutic process. And also just to take this as a very serious issue that should be monitored throughout sessions. Teachers, you can be cognizant of this issue and serve as a frontline defense in the classroom. And parents can reciprocate this at home and in the context of cyberbullying. I've linked to this call to action and some of the other research that I've discussed in our show notes for today. So Merrick, there's of course a lot of takeaways from this, this post and this article. What are your thoughts on this call to action and bullying prevention in general? Well, I hate to say this, and this may sound a little bit pessimistic, but I don't think you can get rid of bullying entirely. People will always try to find some way to cause someone else harm based upon a differing characteristic that they see as unacceptable to them. But I do believe, however, that uh, as the years go by and the more we progress as a society, and the more we uh, basically evolve as human beings and figure out that all the differences we have can be quite interesting and can uh, create bridges between peoples, I think that it is, it is definitely a more opportune climate now than ever before to call uh, to action about bullying prevention. I think that uh, uh, I was bullied years ago. I have had uh, much delayed 
motor skills um, in the past that were much more significant in a way than they are now. What do I mean by that? Well, my arms would droop constantly whenever I would try to relax my arms. And so I would have people around me. Uh, there are a few people I remember who wanted me to make noises with my arms being droopy because they thought that that was very funny to them. And I desperately wanted to fit in. I thought that if I humored them, then that would make me feel happy. That would make them feel happy. But that is another instance of bullying. Mm -hmm. Because what it is, is that it tells people, it, it, it allows someone who is vulnerable, who seeks acceptance, that they can be taken advantage of. Um, but yeah, I, I believe that anyone who is a part of the autistic, of the autistic spectrum should be uh, paid more attention to when it comes to concerns about bullying, when it comes to fears about bullying, when it comes to interactions with other people because uh, there is sometimes nothing more vulnerable to a bully than someone who is not the same socially. And yes. I've remember reading before or at least hearing before of occasions in which a large number of individuals of autism in the school system would confess to having been bullied before plenty of times. And I just think that, that, that this is very, very important. It's, it's definitely uh, something that should be looked at. And I, I believe that if you actually uh, put the numbers together you would probably find individuals of autism to be bullied more than many other populations of the general population itself. That's uh, just me though. Yes. Yeah, and I think the research thus far has shown that to be the case. Um, I definitely echo everything that you just said. I think you um, put things very well there and um, discussing your own experience. We always appreciate that. Um, this, to me, this could be one of the more important topics that we'll cover on the show. I think that as a society, we're getting better with two things, awareness and acceptance of conditions and characteristics that make people different from one another. I think we still have a lot way, a long ways to go in that regard. I do not know what it's like to be someone with autism and be bullied for those characteristics. But when I was in high school, I was starting um, in a completely, I started high school in a new town and in a new state. And I was different in many ways from my peers. And I, I did experience a good deal of bullying. And you know, like Merrick was saying, you try any way that you can to fit in and make friends. So I 
resorted to some clowning around, some um, stuff that was actually detrimental to my success. And, you know, that just the takeaway point that we're trying to bring home here is we need to really um, continue to emphasize um, the importance of anti-bullying campaigns and taking measures um, as adults, doing everything that we can to be safeguarding the classroom, safeguarding, you know, internet activity where bullying can also occur. And then from a societal standpoint, just continuing to understand what makes us different and that those characteristics are usually what makes certain societies so great that people can be different, they can understand each other and still get along and coexist very well. So anyways, I would like to transition now towards our topic of employment. And I'd like to highlight an initiative, an excellent initiative, which was started from Ford Motor Company in Dearborn, Michigan. So back in 2016, they partnered with the Autism Alliance of Michigan, which is a program that uh, has cited their aim to be obtaining over 100,000 jobs for autistic individuals in the state of Michigan. And so Ford Motor Company partnered with them to introduce the Ford Works program, which is a program that aims to hire individuals who are on the autism spectrum, just like Ford IT business analyst, Nick Howard. To mitigate some of the interview demands that may be particularly stressful for individuals with autism, Ford introduced a direct contact to hire method, which forgoes the interview process to a large degree. Instead of the traditional criteria for hiring, they are more concerned in this program with the quality of the work that can be brought to the table and adding neurodiversity and different ways of thinking to accomplish, accomplishing company goals. Dr. Niambi Powell is the diversity and inclusion specialist for Ford and was quoted as saying that hiring individuals with autism is a win-win. They're often very enthusiastic to work and have a great work ethic and attention to detail. At the same time, the company reaps the benefits of a workplace that is more neurodiverse. Merrick, could you talk a little bit about some of the barriers or challenges that are common for individuals with autism as they go through the job search and interview process? Well, that's a pretty interesting question, Nate. And the reason why I say that it's a pretty interesting question is because I've actually uh, spoken recently about this. Um, so one of the things that I think is one of the challenges may have to do with um, <clears throat> with all these unknown uh, social slash uh, dash communication processes. So for example, you show up to an interview, you do really, really well. Then you leave the place of employment and they tell you that they're going to talk to you in two weeks. Now, what I have heard sometimes is that they're not expecting you 
to just basically uh, wait until you get a call in two weeks, but that you're supposed to take the initiative in order to make sure that you do get hired, especially if they don't give a timeline. So if, if you're very, very interested in figuring out if you're gonna be hired or not, you're supposed to call them. And I've had some very interesting moments in the past. Um, one of them was I, I got my job at, uh, well, I'll just, I'll not say the name of the place, but I got my first interview. And then they said that they would call me back for a second interview. And it took three to four months for that second interview. And the reason why was because I wasn't, I didn't exactly ask them if they could give me a second interview. It was actually my father, when I went into the store to uh, look at things, he went over and he talked to the general manager and he talked about how I would like to have a second interview. And the general manager said, okay, we'll give you a second interview. And then I got hired. But it's that kind of thing that can be very, very sticky. Then there's those moments where I was actually told that I would get a phone call in two weeks and I try to call in two weeks and either the person has no, has just limited knowledge as to what to do to hire me or that person just uh, gets some kind of second uh, doubt. And what do I mean by that? Um, I also am not sure if one should even disclose what their condition is, or one should even disclose if they cannot drive themselves. Uh, one of the two to three week uh, interviews I had was with a guy who basically said um, after uh, about scheduling an in-person interview because we just did a phone interview and he said, okay, so Here's, we're going to do an in-person interview. And I told him, okay, I told him about my schedule with my transportation service, Palm Tran Connection. And he uh, said, okay, I, I did it because I thought that that would give him a greater idea as to what times and days would be best for us to do an in-person interview. Then I call up in two weeks, expecting to go over the in-person interview. And he basically told me that I must have failed the interview and he hung up on me. Hmm. This is one of the many different uh, times that I've dealt with some of the challenges in the process of getting a job as an autistic individual. Another challenge has to do with those personality assessment tests, which I absolutely despise. I think that they're <laughs> probably the worst thing ever devised by the employment industry. And I'm not even <laughs> sure why companies do it, 
you're fed and it's pretty much online. You're fed 50 pages of like 60 questions, all trying to decide where you fit psychologically. And if you fail the whole thing, well, then no one gets to see your resume. And there are a few red herrings on that. You're, space, you're basically supposed to say mostly agree or mostly disagree. You're not supposed to say somewhat agree, somewhat disagree. And people who are taking it, like me, who are trying so hard to read what the general mindset is of the, of the people in charge of all this, are trying to also think that, oh, this is a fun little thing I can do, and maybe they'll get a better idea of who I am. No. It's just basically, you may never know what the right answers are. And for that same job that I had to have my father come in to do that second interview, here's the point. I took that test five times, failed five times. My father right. took that test for me, passed once. Okay? He passed the Unicrew test once. And so, <laughs> and, and so I was... I really, really must give a lot of debt to my father for, for doing that, for helping me with that long held job I have, because without him, I wouldn't have, I, 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 that would have been another door shut on me because I'm not, you know, I, because I guess that part of me thinks it's because I'm autistic. I don't know. I really don't know. But mm -hmm. yeah, there are definitely barriers and challenges for people. And it's not just the interview process. The interview process, yeah, eye contact, a learning to answer questions in a way that, you know, is socially what they expect of you. All those things can be challenges but sometimes even applying for a job or even getting a successful interview can lead to further challenges down the road. It's a great answer. All right, I'm gonna hand it over to you, my friend. All right. So after all my belly aching, here's uh, some inspirational stories coming from <laughs> my mouth. <laughs> on so the first one is about our uh, spectrum award winner jim hogan so the l's for autism spectrum award is given annually to honor an individual with autism spectrum disorder who has signed who has shined a positive light on autism through his her character positive attitude and contribution after receiving a record number of nominations this year we are pleased to announce this year's winner, Jim Hogan. A self-computer scientist. Sorry, Jim Hogan. <laughs> a self-taught computer scientist at the age of 16, Jim has always found this passion working in leadership positions in the tech industry, which has allowed him the voice to change the culture of how some of the bigger tech companies perceive those with autism 
especially on the topic of neurodiversity, through his voice, he has led the way for hundreds of employees with autism to find fulfilling roles working as part of the Corporate America interface. He currently works as an innovation strategist at Google and will be speaking at our Building a Neurodiverse Workforce Conference. So I've got a question for you, Nate. Since you are research-minded, why does it seem like the tech industry is so attractive to hiring prospects for employees with autism? That's an excellent question. And I think the short answer that I'd like to give is because individuals with autism can be extremely skilled when it comes to technology-based jobs, when it comes to positions that require a lot of detail and a lot of um, really strong, prolonged focus, um, such as you know, data analysts, coding positions, various um, you know, lines of work that are really beneficial to the tech companies. So the longer answer, I would say does tie back into one of the core characteristics of autism, which is oftentimes described as having a restricted set of interests or a hyper-focused um, set of interests. And what this comes down to uh, is, you know, could be an ability to really have uh, an extremely good sustained focus to a certain topic. And in this case, if it's tech work, you know, it's really seeing a project to the end or it's having the ability to juggle a large amount of data and mine through it and, and come to a solution, regardless of what the specific task is, having that ability um, to really hone in on that objective um, is something that uh, is seen in a, in a great number of individuals with autism. And this also ties back into just looking at the, the, some of the neurological character, characteristics of autism. You can see sort of hyperconnectivity in certain brain areas, local hyperconnectivity that may relate to um, some, of, some of this uh, pattern, some of these patterns. Um, and even in, in some extreme cases, you might see the savant-like memory abilities to remember um, you know, specific dates from many years ago with which something occurred. Uh, this does tie into that um, hyperconnectivity theory, which would then relate to this ability to hyper-focus on a certain topic of interest. So I know that I got um, a little bit sciencey there, but the, the short answer again is because uh, a lot of individuals with autism, they're very they're very interested in this work and they're also very good at it. Okay, good answer, uh, Dr. Chinook. Thank you. You're really serving your doctorate well. <laughs> I'm trying my best to live up to the title. <laughs> okay, 
So our next story is about an employer for our upcoming conference. Tom Derry is a Forbes 30 under 30 social entrepreneur and an expert in autism employment through his experience as a co-founder and COO of Rising Tide Car Wash, a social enterprise that employs over 80 individuals of autism and a successful car wash business. Tom is also the co-founder of Rising Tide U, an organization dedicated to teaching others how to harness the how to harness the autism advantage. As of September 2020, Tom's students have created over 145 jobs for people with autism in 21 businesses. Tom deeply believes that all people have the potential to contribute to society and that businesses can improve their market position by committing themselves to unleashing this potential. He is slated to be a keynote speaker at the Building a Neurodiverse Workforce Conference where he will talk about how his enterprises and programs have helped bring employment into play for those with autism. Question for you, Nate. What would you most want to hear from a speech given on the topic of an employer committing to greater employment for those with autism? First of all, I just want to say we're very excited to have Tom speak at the conference. My interest, I would say, would be strongest to hear just about um, different, uh, just about individuals with autism adapting to a wide variety of different fields, right? So going back to our previous example, and I think we've spoken a lot about the autism advantage when it comes to the tech industry, but I think it would be fascinating to um, hear success stories about individuals with autism who have branched out into maybe fields of employment that would be unexpected given the core characteristics of autism. Someone working in communication, radio work, news work, acting. Um, I think hearing how those individuals have overcome obstacles to become successful would be really fascinating to me. What about you, Merrick? I would just want to hear uh, if he knows anybody who is an entrepreneur or who is autistic and helps run a business. Um, I like to hear, I, I really, really appreciate entrepreneurs and what they do for us and to know about more entrepreneurs uh, who are heads uh, or who run businesses who happen to be autistic would be very uh, valuable information indeed. Juan. Good morning, everyone. As promised, we are joined today by Dr. Michael Alessandri, who is the executive director of the University of Miami, Nova Southeastern, University Center for Autism and Related Disabilities. So it's great to have you on the show, Dr. Alessandri. Thank you, good to be here. Excellent. So I would like to, or we would like to ask you a couple questions today. And great. the first one that I was wondering, um, so first of all, you've been making great contributions 
to the field of autism for, for a long period of time with clinical work, as well as the research that you've been a part of. Could you please talk a little bit more about your experience in this field and what inspired you to pursue a career helping individuals with autism? Sure, I'd be happy to. First of all, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be with both of you and really proud to be um, a part of the ELLS for Autism Foundation. Uh, as you know, I sit on the board and I'm just super excited to, to see the work you all are doing and, and love that you're doing this podcast. So thanks for having me. Um, and a great question and a, certainly a perfect place to start. Um, my career, um, you're right, it has been long. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's code for old, but it has been uh, lengthy and wonderful. I will say that um, I graduated high school in 1981. Um, don't do the math, but what's important about that is um, immediately after graduating, uh, my parents wanted me to do some volunteer work and possibly even get a job for the summer. I had been a really diligent student, hadn't really worked um, back in those days. It, it wasn't as common, I guess, to work in high school. Um, so I didn't work and, and I, I really just focused on my studies, but I didn't have any clear direction career-wise. And I was heading into college and my parents thought it'd be useful for me to spend the summer really thinking about either working, but even more importantly, doing some volunteer work. So I actually went on a whim with a friend of mine to a um, job that she had as a volunteer for one day. I literally was going just to test the waters. And it happened to be at a summer camp for children with disabilities. And on the very first day, they, because they didn't think I was coming back, they said, why don't you just spend the day with one boy and, you know, at the end of the day, see kind of how you liked it, what your, you know, your thoughts are about continuing or, you know, just generally what, what the experience was for you. So that one day I spent um, with a young boy, young African-American boy named Marlon. And, you know, it was the most remarkable day I'd ever had in my life. Granted, I was only 17, so I didn't have much experience in life in general, but, you know, it was really special. You know, Marlon um, was nonverbal. Um, you know, had some cognitive challenges, uh, was definitely uh, a different kind of child than I had ever seen. And, and the word they used that day to describe him was autistic. And I had never heard that word before. So it was, um, it was really kind of eye-opening. I really enjoyed my time with him. I found him to be kind of exceptionally uh, connected to me in a way, despite not having any language. And you know, even the way that he interacted with just the world around him throughout that one day, kind of, um, you just made me so curious about him. And at the end of the day, I went home, you know, true story and told both of my parents, I think I know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. You know, I want to work with people like Marlon. And it was like a lightning bolt moment for, you know, for a young kid, that's really uh, quite special. And you know, 40 years later, heading into my 40th year, next year of working with people with autism, 40 years later, I'm still um, as passionate, as inspired, and as motivated by the work in the autism community and, and will continue, you know, for forever, presumably, as long as you'll have me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a great journey. I mean, it's been a really... Um, been a very successful journey. It's very been a very impactful journey. And it's been a very diverse journey too, in terms of the work that I've done. It's, you know, I've dabbled in a lot of areas in the autism world and, and all of them have been really gratifying. Everything from running my center to teaching, to doing research, to having an international um, practice for consulting, to, you know, advocacy, 
Um, now I'm working a lot on employment and housing and, you know, it's just been really, uh, it's been really, a, it's been a very special career, I think in many ways, and uh, I'm grateful for it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your origin story. Um, it's always very interesting for me to hear what, you know, is the, the spark that gets professionals involved in this field. Um, myself, I include myself in that category, you know, an early experience um, with an individual with autism really, you know, um, created that inspiration. Um, so that's it's always fascinating to hear about. And uh, I did not mean to imply uh, length <laughs> time-wise. I meant length from a success standpoint. Thanks, Nate. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, listen, and I think I love that your story is similar. Uh, every, you know, remarkable person I've ever met in this field has a similar origin story, you know, where that spark of curiosity was lit. And um, I think those are the, the best professionals, the, the ones who have, whose careers have the most legs um, and who really kind of make the emotional contribution uh, and in addition to the intellectual contribution to the work. And so those are the people I tend to gravitate towards. Those are the, you know, the, the grad student applicants that I tend to accept um, and the colleagues that I hire and collaborate with. They all share that same kind of aha moment that, you know, autism grabs you and it doesn't let go. You know, it's, it's kind of a remarkable thing. That's a, that's a great point. And yeah, a lot of individuals who I've met in this field who have had, you know, personal experiences with family members having autism. And I think that that's so amazing that, you know, their interactions with these individuals are um, so important to them that it, it draws them to even, you know, seek out um, a, prof a profession or a career Mm -hmm. um, in that, in that realm. So yep. I'd like to now shift gears a little bit. Um, so thank you again for, you know, chairing the conference that our foundation, the Else for Autism Foundation is hosting in March of, of 2021 titled Building a Neurodiverse Workforce. Could you please tell us a little bit about the conference, what kind of experience people can expect and what you hope that attendees will take away. Sure, I'll do my best. Um, there's a whole team working on this, so I certainly don't want to pretend to take any more credit than I deserve, but I am happy and proud to be sharing. This is the actually the second um, Global Innovations and Impact Conference that we've hosted. Uh, the first one was uh, more of a global kind of scientific you know, research-based presentation, which was one of the finest conferences I'd ever been to. Again, not taking too much credit for it, but you know, it was one of those conferences where we invited a lot of our friends who are the top you know, uh, researchers and, and thought leaders in their field to come and really just talk to us and talk to our community about some of these big issues in autism. And it was remarkably well attended and, and very, very successful. So we, you know, we clearly knew we wanted to do another one um, and had planned to do these and now plan to do these every two years. Obviously COVID has been a little bit of a disruptor. So we got a little bit backed up and, but we are, we are launching this event in March. Um, it's going to be a virtual event this year, which I think is really the, 
the uh, the right way to go. I think it's the responsible way to go, given what the the world is dealing with. But we wanted to focus on employment. You know, employment is such a big part of what the foundation is working on, and it's such an important part of you know life for people people in general, but particularly people on on the spectrum who have a lot of value to offer and who need opportunities to work to feel their own personal value in life. So we, we thought we'd cobble together a, another conference, um, inviting, a, again, a lot of our friends. So you will see on the agenda colleagues and collaborators of mine and of the foundation. Um, and, and I think the you know, the way we've designed it is really kind of interesting for anyone interested in either creating employment opportunities or supporting employment opportunities or just being part of the, 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 the group of people thinking about employment of people with disabilities and really creating a truly neurodiverse workforce. We have people from academia who will be presenting. We have people from you know, industry, people are actually walking the walk, employing people on the spectrum. And we have people from government as well. And of course, we always have, um, you know, self-advocates or individuals on the spectrum who represent, you know, what we're trying to accomplish in terms of neurodiversity at work. So we're really pleased with the way this conference is coming together. We think there's going to be a little something for everyone you know, the overarching theme is employment, and we're getting at it in a lot of different ways. But we wanted to have some big concept talks, you know, about uh, labor and disability and, and neurodiversity and in the workplace. But we also wanted it to be a little bit of a nuts and boltsy kind of conference as well. So we have people, you know, those people who are walking the walk, who are going to be presenting on their best practices, things that they've learned in the trenches, either at the early stage of a business opportunity or somewhere in the middle or really kind of more advanced uh, business ventures that are um, that have been successful and now they're in kind of that sustainability mode. So we have, you know, again, big concept talks, but also some of these more detailed oriented presentations that will really help people depending on where they are in their own you know, life cycle of their employment, employment venture, there's something for everyone along that journey. And we're, we're, we're really, I think, um, pleased with uh, how responsive people have been to our request to, to be part of this. So, you know, we have, I, I won't name names, but except for a few who are friends of mine, <laughs> who I really always want to, you know, plug, I, we, we made a, you know, I, we emailed Paul Wayman, who's one of the leading figures in supported employment, you know, a university professor, a longstanding expert in supported employment. And he, you know, within seconds of getting our email wanted in, you know, he wanted to be part of this event, which was remarkable. Tom Dieri from the Rising Tide Car Wash, who's a longtime collaborator of mine, jumped on the chance to be part of this with us as well and always answers the call when it comes to, you know, requests from me and requests um, from the ELS Foundation. Uh, Haley Moss, who's a young adult um, with autism, who's an attorney. Um, will, and, and is one of the advisor, advisory board members for ELS. She will be there as well. And then Craig Lean, who's a former board member of my center, who is now with um, the federal government. He's in Washington working for the administration on employment and disability in, in a big way. And, and he's just another. And there are many, many more. Uh, Valerie Herskowitz from the Chocolate Spectrum will be with us. And, um, okay. I, and I, 
I think I think so. Anyway, actually, actually, I'm, I have to check the agenda. If she's, I'm pretty sure Valerie will be with us in some capacity. And then, uh, it, so I think it's going to be interesting. I think there's something for everyone. Obviously, we want to give people um, the tools they need to meaningfully create employment opportunities, and not just the employment opportunities, but really the ability to sustain those employment opportunities. Because it's it's not that hard to get a job. It's harder to keep a job and to support employees over the long haul. So I think we've covered all of our bases. I think we have something really special to offer. And I'm certainly hopeful that people from all aspects of, of the community, particularly in the industry of employing people in general, like those HR managers and the like will turn out and really show support for this event. And, and we're hoping to, to continue this, this, this conference theme you know, over the next who knows how many years and every other year we'll have something slightly different. Maybe the next one will be housing. Maybe the next one will be on education and intervention. Who knows? But it's a really exciting format. And I think the foundation is just well situated to offer these, you know, thought leading discussions on topics central to uh, making the world a better place for people with autism. Absolutely. Those are some, some great names in the field of autism. And I don't know about you, Merrick, but I'm getting really excited for the conference uh, that was definitely a, a great promotion. And, um, you know, there, as Dr. Alessandri said, there will be something for everybody there. Yeah, if it's anything like the last employment conference um, that I went to last year, then it's going to be amazing. That's a good, you know, you just reminded me, Merrick, we also had that, that um, autism at work conference at the foundation, which was, you know, really well done. I thought that was executed beautifully. And some of the best people in this industry were there for that as well. So um, yeah, thanks for reminding me of that one. That was remarkable. Okay, so in celebration of National Employment Disability Awareness Month in October, we have a few questions related to employing neurodiverse adults. Before we get to the questions, though, I do want to say autism grabs you, it doesn't let go. That would be a great like little thing, a tagline for social media to promote this podcast interview. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's, uh, from my perspective, what it means is it inspires, you know, it's so exhilarating for me to be in the presence of people with autism and to do the work and, and to, to maintain like such a high level of passion and, and inspiration for 40 years. I mean, it doesn't say anything about me. It says something about autism, you know, I think. So I think it's, a, I think you're right. I think it's, uh, you know, as long as people interpret it in the way that I intended it, I think it's a really nice way to think about um, how those of us who are in this business get pulled into it and, you know, stay in it for so long. Okay. So um, why do you think it is so important for employers to specifically target neurodiverse communities, especially those with autism when hiring? Well, I think, you know, I think like everything, uh, workplaces should look like society, right? Workplaces should mirror what we see in our neighborhoods and in our communities and in our schools. And, and I think it's important that, you know, we recognize that diversity in general in the workforce is so important um, in, in just shaping who we are as people and who our businesses are at their core. And I think the, the neurodiversity piece is really an, obviously important to me because I, what I've discovered over these 40 years is that you, know, you may think you understand what a person can and can't do by the way that they 
present themselves, if you will, whether they talk or not talk or whether they have, you know, certain behaviors that you don't understand or not, but you really don't understand what a person's capable of until they are actually given the chance to demonstrate that to you. So I just see, um, employment as, you know, it's a, it's a right for, for people. I mean, employment is what gives us all kind of value. If I think about my own career, listen, we've just talked about, I'm a 56 going on 57 year old man. And 40 of those years have been spent, you know, essentially being really passionate about my work, right? Can, how can you take that opportunity to have value in your life or give value back to the community um, away from someone uh, with just because they have a disability like autism. So I think workplaces should reflect the community. And I think we all as a society should be trying to create opportunities for people to feel how important they are to the rest of us and to also give back some of the value um, I think that they have to offer. Everyone is employable. I mean, this is a mantra of mine for my whole career. You know, back in the day when people used to say to me, this kid on the spectrum maybe isn't testable in a school environment, or this kid isn't, this adult isn't employable. I would always say everyone's testable. Everyone is employable. The question is, what are you going to do to level the playing field to allow those people, despite their disabilities, to demonstrate to you what they're capable of? And I think that's why it's incumbent upon all of us to, to work together to create more opportunities, whether it be more opportunities for inclusion in school or community, or more opportunities in, in the workforce to create jobs um, you know, and some of them may be more supported than they would be in a neurotypical situation. But in some cases, that's not the, that's not even the case. You know, many of my, we have five or six adults at card that are on the spectrum and some need intensive supports and some need no support at all. They can do their jobs just fine. Right. So, and, and our workplace is much better having them there than not because it's, um, it's the richness of the social and emotional experience of having different people and differently able people in the workforce um, as your colleagues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone wants to be more independent. Uh, that's, that's what we as human beings like to strive for. And a good, um, good aspect of independence is to be able to show that you're able to work, you're able to you know, support something. And yeah, so that's, that's very important. Um, the second question is, how have employment opportunities created positive change in the lives of individuals with autism? Well, I think, you know, tagging onto what you just said, it's, it's really, again, it's about that movement towards greater independence. Um, employment opportunities, get, first of all, they give your life meaning. They make you feel valued. Um, and they give you, you know, they, as I said before, they give you this kind of richness of social emotional experiences with other people that wouldn't exist if you were isolated at home or, you know, not able to work or relegated to work that was even that was, you know, that was available, but maybe less um, robust than you're capable of like the one of the bigger issues in one of the big issues in the disability world is unemployment, of course, but maybe even a bigger issue is underemployment. You know, the number of adults with autism who work, but who work in a, in a field or in a job that is really below their capabilities is also problematic. So, you know, I think what we're trying to achieve here is to stimulate people to be creative in their thinking about ways to employ on people with disabilities and then thinking creatively about ways to support them. And then also making sure that we're really matching, you know, 
the right jobs to the right skill set so that people do truly feel appreciated and valued and respected. Um, you know, and it, we have to always be thinking about work from, you know, more of a sociological perspective. Like if you look at the research on employment and on vocational kinds of um, aspects of, of science, you'll find that, you know, work brings value, work brings your life meaning. And um, when people don't have work and they can be working or they should be working, you see a lot of secondary um, negative effects of that depression, anxiety, um, lack of self-worth, lack of self-esteem, you know, isolation, and all of those things contribute to a much more negative outcome than when you have the ability to work and you have that work supported in the way that it should be in, in order to make you um, perform at your optimal level. So, you know, I hope I answered your question, but I think, you know, you just can't undervalue the power of work. And the other thing I will say is, you know, we talk a lot in the autism and disability world about the importance of early intervention. We talk about the importance of evidence-based treatment and effective interventions. And we talk a lot about what should and shouldn't happen in terms of school. Um, but what if we invest all these resources in early, inter early identification, early intervention, high quality school programs, and then these kids just exit to nothing, right? Like we have an obligation to make sure that what we did from zero to 18 or zero to 22 has legs for the long haul. And the only positive outcome for me after 18 years of schooling, give or take, is employment, right? And is, in, and it is a movement towards a more independent life with whatever level of support you need. So we can't just punt on all the investment early on by ignoring what happens in, in, adult, in adulthood. And that goes for housing too, right? It's not just about employment. It's also about where will you, you know, employment is a means to ind more independent housing, right? It's a way to make money and have some resources to hopefully be able to support yourself or in whatever, again, whatever level of support you need in something beyond your family's home. So all of these things are intricately related. And I think what we have to start doing is instead of start starting to think about autism from the beginning, I think we need to think of it from the end like what is your later in life look like look like for people with autism and then work our way back um, and i think right now we're not doing a great job as a society i think we have too few employment options we have nearly you know no good um housing options or residential options so we have to think we have to start later and think backwards and, and try to connect the dots um and make sure that every aspect of life or every section of life, if you will, developmentally is as robust as what we see now in early identification and early intervention and even early schooling. Um, so that was a little bit of a long-winded response, but I think you get my point, which is that, you know, you can't, you can't compartmentalize parts of life anymore for people with autism. You have to think about the entire lifespan and there really shouldn't be any gaps in, 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 in best practices. Okay. So what does it mean to increase access and opportunity in the workplace for people on the spectrum and how can employers go about doing that? Well, I think, you know, I think we've talked about some of this. It, I think what I will say, I'll start with the, the last part first. I think what employers can do is try to use their imagination, try to imagine what is possible. Every employer 
has an opportunity in their workspace for a person with a disability, a person with autism. Um, it just takes imagination. It just takes the willingness to create an opportunity and then to find the right partners to support that opportunity. Every single employer that we've ever partnered with in my work that has taken the initiative to create a job or to designate a job for a person with a disability has always been uniquely and remarkably satisfied that they did it, right? Like it's, it's a transformative experience when you can push yourself over the edge of whatever anxiety you might have about creating such a unique position as an employer. It, every single person has had a positive experience um, that I've worked with anyway, because we make sure that those, those experiences are supported. Um, I think, you know, what we try to do is, is um, we try to engage employers with the idea that this is not charity, right? This is really important to me and to many of my colleagues. Like creating a job for someone with autism isn't a charitable contribution you're making. Like this is real work for real money, you know, with real productivity. Like these are not, you know, autism is not a charity. It's actually good for business. Um, and this is a mantra that myself and, and my friends at Rising Tide Car Wash um, always talked about when we, we had a major project a few years ago where we created an online course for teaching people how to create businesses around, um, you know, their particular interests or their, um, their talents. And we always said, you know, the only way for autism employment to be successful or neurodiversity to be successful is if people don't treat it like it's a charity. They understand that this is real work um, and high quality work. So, and I think that's super important. So I think you have to talk to employers, not from that charitable, please do this. It's going to feel good if you do it point of view, but rather this is good for business. Like many of our employees with autism, um, are very reliable. They never miss work. They're very responsible. They're highly productive. They work quickly and efficiently and correctly. Um, you know, they don't need the same, they don't have the same social distractions in the workforce that many other people have. You don't see them on their phones all the time. They're not taking breaks throughout the day um, that are unplanned. You know, it's, it's, so it's really important to understand the value that these unique individuals bring to the workspace. And so we, we always pitch it as good for business, good for the bottom line, good for the, the, uh, diver good for the diversity, but in the sense that, you know, they will inspire other people to, to achieve higher levels of quality and higher levels of, of productivity. Okay. So Nate, uh, any more questions? Yes, I would just like to close by asking you if you could talk a little bit about some of the projects or programs <laughs> going on at UM card that you're currently working on that you're you're very excited about or you'd like to share with our listeners. Sure, um, it's such a big question. So, <laughs> card is you know I think one of the the challenges for us um, generally is that card is a lifespan uh, support agency. So we're serving families when their children are first diagnosed, and then we follow them for their entire life spans as long as they need us and when they need us. So, so we're not, you know, there are many agencies that are just child oriented, many that are just adult oriented. Um, we're actually covering every aspect of that life journey um, as we talked about a little bit earlier. So, so it's challenging for us to, to kind of meet the needs of everyone where they are developmentally, but we do the best we can. So we have, you know, lots of 
uh, programming for families and children. We have lots of programming for adults. I think one of the things we're most excited about of late is um, our autism friendly initiative. So we've launched an autism friendly initiative where we partner with local businesses and local kinds of cultural institutions to make those facilities uh, more sensory friendly, more autism friendly, more inclusive. And it involves some training, it involves some um, creation of visual supports and social narratives and, and other tools that, that will make those experiences more positive for people in the autism community who often feel very isolated from a lot of the same opportunities that neurotypical families have easy access to. So we're just trying to kind of widen the, the net a little bit, make the community a little bit more open and inclusive. We've worked with some pediatric dental facilities. Um, we had a partnership this year with uh, five urgent care centers where we now have um, autism and sensory friendly um, uh, exam rooms in each of the urgent care facilities, plus some downloadable visual supports that parents can use and sensory kits in each of those centers as well. We worked with a, a museum called Young at Art, and they now have a on their website, um, downloadable, again, downloadable materials, um, training for the staff. We also have a, a sensory map for the museum so that parents can anticipate when there might be bright lights or um, loud sounds so that you can kind of know what's coming um, from one end of the museum to another. We also work with the Broward Center for Performing Arts on a, a, also an autism friendly initiative and many others are coming. We're also now starting to work with um, different municipalities, so different cities uh, throughout South Florida to do some of the same work, but on a broader scale. So we'll be working with childcare facilities, some perform another other performing arts centers, um, and again, it's all about making making sure that there are enough opportunities throughout the community that are accessible for our families. We don't want them just going to school and therapy and then feeling isolated at home. We want them actually integrated fully with the broader society having as easy access to those other kinds of activities in a community as, as everyone else has. So that's really exciting and we're happy about that. We're also always excited about our adult programming. We have some really wonderful uh, job training programs, job preparation programs where we you know, teach resume building and interview skills and the like. You know, Many people are doing this. I think uh, we, we, we do it quite well and we've been doing it for, for some time. It's called our Job Seekers Program. That's been going super well. We actually transitioned all of our services to a remote format during COVID and we saw our productivity just skyrocket. We had you know, 50% more client contacts, 100% more trainings. We've had an explosion in productivity during COVID and that's basically because the need was so high but also our ability to pivot and, and really meet the needs so kind of efficiently and effectively was pretty remarkable. And then, you know, Nate, you'll know, I mean, I'm always excited about our research at UM, we have a, a portfolio of research that extends from, you know, basic uh, genetic studies where we're looking for um, genetic variants that are related to autism. We were part of a paper that was just published at the end of um, last year where we found, you know, nine new autism related genes. So that's super exciting. We just finished an NIH R01 on, um, it's an MRI, fMRI study where we were looking at essentially at cognitive flexibility in kids with autism. And, and that's just wrapped up and we'll, you'll see some, we have a few papers out now, but there'll be some more papers coming from that study. We have another NIH Autism Center of Excellence grant with our colleague at FSU, Dr. Amy Weatherby, where we're, you know, trying to screen babies using an online screening tool in pediatric 
in, in primary care practices, and then identifying those kids as early as possible between 12 and 24 months who are at risk, and then getting them in uh, a parent coaching model for, for intervention. It's all virtual now. So we can kind of zoom into the home and coach parents through some of those early developmental moments in, in interaction with their children. Uh, and that's super exciting. And, and then we have so many other things going on. We've been part of epidemiology studies. We've been part of school-based comparative studies of treatment. And I have, you know, with some colleagues, a series of studies looking at how families cope with autism. And we tend to look at it from a more positive vantage point. Like, let's look at the ones who cope well, and then let's try to discover what those uh, personality traits are that make them cope well and integrate those into some of the, our parent training and, and coaching models so that we can, you know, help parents, um, you know, be optimal in their functioning and respond more positively to the challenges that come with autism. And there are challenges, like we're not sugarcoating the reality. Autism is not easy for everyone. Um, that walks this journey. Uh, for some, it's easier than others, but for others, it's quite difficult. So we want to learn from those who cope really well, as opposed to just demonizing everyone and saying, you know, autism is this negative thing and everyone must suffer from it. I mean, that just drives me nuts, that perspective. Right. So I, I, most of the families that I've worked with actually are so resilient and so special that, you know, we want to really kind of bottle that up and try to teach other people how to do it. Uh, so, so we, so that's, you know, that in a nutshell, those are many of the things that I'm excited about. And, and, you know, we've been working with you, Nate, and we're excited about that. We've been working with you, with you taking the lead, of course, on developing our survey to evaluate the impact of some of this virtual programming. It's, it's, you know, one of the first attempts, I think, to really demonstrate to, to people that, you know, not only is virtual programming necessary because of COVID, but in some cases, it might actually be impactful in a, in a very positive way. And in some ways, more impactful for certain segments of the population than, than some of some of the live support that we provide. So, you know, more to come on that. But uh, yeah, there's a lot to be excited about in the autism world and in my work right now. So I'm happy to be still chugging along. Absolutely. I was hoping you'd bring up our collaboration there at the end. Uh, very excited to to uh, take a look at those results relating to uh, the effectiveness of some of the excellent virtual programs that both of our uh, centers have been providing during the lockdown and beyond. Well, um, all credit to you. You've been doing the heavy lifting and we're super appreciative. And you, I, I, I know you sent me an email teasing me about the results and I'm going to get to that this week. And I'm super excited to find out what you, what you've discovered. So thank you for your work on that. Absolutely. And Thank you. Based on your reply to the last question, I think it's safe to conclude that you have a full <laughs> plate of, uh, of projects. So we really appreciate you coming on our show and just a great conversation. Um, and I think our listeners will really uh, love this episode. Right. I'm so happy to be here. And thanks for inviting me, guys. I really appreciate it. It's nice to be invited to the party. Okay. So before we go, we want to thank the Foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in November with some more coverage on us on the, and the autistic community in general. So Nate, here we go with our ending call. Four. I could fly 
so high, oh like a butterfly. I fly into the air, so high, oh like a butterfly. A moth is a butterfly without any colors, but what's beautiful is what's inside. Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide. Well, I'm just a caterpillar crawling around. Knowledge in my head, but my feet on the ground. Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky, like a butterfly. I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Like a bird, I was meant to soar. I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours You can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind In the future your eyes will light up To think that I was once a poor cat and pup Will grow up and take to the sky like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly so high Oh like a butterfly I'll fly into the air so high, just like a butterfly. You'll be surprised at just what I can do. If you nurture me and you see me through. From a higher point of view We'll fly together, me and you Well now I can fly so high Cause I'm a butterfly I'm flying through the air so high